Hello, welcome back to the podcast. Um, this is going to be episode number two of Guinea Pig Ship. Uh, this chapter is entitled The British Background. Now, this chapter is a little shorter, um, so this will be a shorter episode, but I hope you enjoy it nonetheless. HMS Diana was singled out by the Admiralty for a task unprecedented in the Royal Navy, or indeed any other Navy. She was to take part in the testing of nuclear bombs, though her role lay not in the bombs themselves, but in the after-effects. These cataclysmic explosions, codenamed Operation Mosaic, took place at Montebello in May and June of 1956. There were two atomic bombs which were part of the British program to develop a nuclear capability that would place the United Kingdom on a par with any other nation in the world so far as destructive potential was concerned. The Montebello Islands lie off the northwest coast of Australia. Ideally suited for the purpose of nuclear testing, they are uninhabited and at the periphery of the seemingly limitless southern ocean where radioactive fallout, if borne on a northeast wind, might be carried away for thousands of miles and do no harm to anyone. There are no islands to the west and south, and ships pass but rarely, all the way to where the Indian Ocean merges imperceptibly into the Antarctic. It is a part of the world unknown throughout history to all but a few intrepid voyagers. The islands of Montebello hardly qualify as islands at all, being little more than sandbars that are covered in scrubby vegetation and look as though they will barely remain above water at high tide. Among these unprepossessing banks in this remote archipelago are some, of, are some with rather grand names, Trimalee and Alpha Island being the two with which the nuclear tests were directly concerned. It was the Royal Navy that was most closely involved in the conduct of the tests, and a group of warships gathered at the islands under the command of Commodore Hugh Martell, who had his headquarters in the tank landing ship HMS Narvik. There were also a couple of destroyers from the Far East Fleet, whose job it was to keep innocent merchant vessels away from the danger area, and also, presumably, to ensure that unauthorized visitors and other interlopers did not get close enough to see anything the British authorities would not wish them to see. HMS Diana was present for the whole of Operation Mosaic. She was a fast, sleek, and highly dangerous-looking warship that was not concerned with either the technical aspects of the bombs or the keeping away of unwelcome visitors, though she was well-suited to the latter task. She was a daring class destroyer, detached from the Mediterranean fleet to this ad hoc flotilla assembled at Montebello. Like her sister ships back in Malta, she was heavily armed, and this armament, of course, required a lot of men. Diana, though only some 2,500 tons, had a ship's company of 300. By comparison with the new daring class, Type 45 destroyers of the 21st century, three times Diana's displacement, she was seriously overcrowded. Her role at Montebello was to be alarmingly different from that of the other ships assembled there. The Second World War had been brought to a sudden and horrific end with the dropping by the Americans of atomic bombs on the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. These events had demonstrated before the eyes of the whole world the terrible power that man could, through his scientific ingenuity, release upon his enemies. Then, as international relations in the post-war period began to turn more fraught with tension and mistrust, it quickly became apparent that it was not just the Americans who possessed the bomb, as it came to be called. So too did the USSR. This led inevitably to an escalation, not only in the number of nuclear weapons possessed by the potential adversaries, but also in the very nature of them. 
The atom bomb, with all its proven destructive power, was now thought not big enough, nor sufficiently destructive. And so the expertise of scientists created an even more terrifying device, the hydrogen bomb. The explosive force of the A-bomb was measured in thousands of tons of TNT, or kilotons. That of the H-bomb was calculated in millions of tons, or megatons. While the so-called nuclear arms race was going on between the superpowers, the the USA and USSR, Britain did not remain idle. The United Kingdom still regarded herself as a major force in the world, and was determined that she too would become a full nuclear power in her own right, rather than simply as an ally of the USA. The necessary skill and knowledge was abundantly present among scientists in Britain, and it was not long before the first successful British test of a nuclear bomb took place. This was at the Montebello Islands on the 3rd of October, 1952. By this time, however, production of the hydrogen bomb by the Americans and also the Russians was already a reality, and Britain, nuclear power though she had now become, still lay far behind the USA and USSR. She was faced, therefore, with the question as to whether she too should develop and test a thermonuclear device, the hydrogen bomb. Despite the close relationship between the two countries, the USA refused to pass on to Great Britain the necessary technology for the construction of the H-bomb because of security fears following the defection from Britain to the Soviet Union of the spies, Fuchs, Burgess, Philby, and McLean, and so it was necessary for Britain to proceed independently. The decision to go ahead with the production of the hydrogen bomb was taken by the Prime Minister, Winston Churchill, on the 16th of June, 1954, and a process of development was set in train that would, less than two years later, indirectly involve HMS Diana. In order successfully to to detonate a hydrogen bomb, it was necessary for it to be triggered by a powerful atom bomb, and the development of such a trigger was the main purpose of the tests held at Montebello in 1956. It led to Britain's first successful detonation of a hydrogen bomb at Christmas Island in Operation Grapple on the 15th of May, 1957. Whatever tasks fell to the other ships at Montebello, whether concerning the construction and functioning of the bomb itself or security of the test area, Diana was not part of either. She had been brought to the far side of the world at the behest of the Admiralty to provide the answer to a question that had taxed the Naval Chiefs of Staff for some time. This was, quote, In the event of a nuclear attack on the fleet, what would be the effect of the explosion and its ensuing radioactive fallout on the ship, her contents, equipment, and above all, her crew, end quote. The report prepared by Diana's medical officer shortly after the test is quite specific on the question of the ship's purpose at Montebello. He states, quote, in general terms, the ship was under orders to, A, absorb Observe the distribution of radioactive fallout material in an operational ship during and after the passage of the radioactive cloud. B, to test the effectiveness of pre-wetting and all other established ABC precautions and drills, and to modify the latter as necessary in the interests of 100% efficiency. Also to test and practice an available radiac instrumentation. So ABC there refers to atomic, biological, and chemical. So aspects of potential enemy attack with which the Navy was increasingly concerned. Back to the quote. C, to observe the effects on men and materials of A and B, and D, to provide a platform for purely scientific observations. And that's a quote from the Medical Officer's Journal, HMS Diana, 1956. The ship could not, of course, be exposed to the direct blast and heat of a major nuclear explosion. The outcome of such, as it, an, event, the outcome of such an eventuality was self-evident, 
the answer sought was in an area much more insidious than outright proximity to the explosion. And so the question to be addressed by Diana was, how would the crew, the ship, her weaponry, her machinery and equipment respond to exposure to the radioactive matter that would descend upon her in the aftermath of the explosion? It appears that what the Admiralty had in mind was to see if a ship could be provided with the means of protecting her crew from the malign effects of radiation and thereby maintain her fighting efficiency. The only way to conduct such a test was to allow the radioactive matter from a nuclear explosion to land upon a chosen ship as the mushroom cloud dispersed and the minute particles began to fall back to Earth. Operation Mosaic provided the ideal opportunity. Here was a series of nuclear bomb tests already scheduled to take place. Why not simply send along a suitable ship and expose her to radiation under actual conditions of nuclear war? The chiefs of staff did not know. They could not know how safe the men would be. It was a question of trial and error. This question itself was perfectly valid and one on which the admirals were quite entitled to ponder, but not necessarily one upon which they were entitled to act. They were right to ask whether or not a ship having been exposed to heavy nuclear fallout would still be capable of warlike operations. However, the implications of what they were ordering the ship and her crew to do were a major step into the unknown. A ship exposed to radiation might well retain her fighting efficiency for months after the explosion and give a good account of herself in action against an enemy. What, though, of the longer-term effects? People exposed to radiation and damaged by it often betray no symptoms for years. The Admiralty's question might be answered perfectly satisfactorily in the short term only for members of the ship's company to have received doses of radiation, the effects of which could remain undetected for half their lifetime. Equally, a man exposed to the fallout might suffer damage that would only manifest itself in his children, his grandchildren, or even his great-grandchildren. Diana arrived at Montebello in early May and anchored a little way offshore. Her captain paid the customary visit to the Commodore and HMS Narvik, who sent a group of scientists over to Diana to examine the progress made in the ship in preparation for her forthcoming task. They reported as followed, quote, General impression was everyone understood the basic problems and how to tackle them. They have fallen short in the apparatus and tools to do the job, end quote. We might speculate here as to who they could be. Did the scientists mean the government, the admiralty, or did they mean the officers and ship's company of HMS Diana? It could hardly mean the Dianas, since they were totally unschooled in such matters. Whoever had fallen short in the provision of apparatus and tools, it was someone much further the chain of command than Captain Gower and his men. The scientists went on, the scientists went on to declare, quote, We cannot, however, assume any direct responsibility for the radiological safety of Diana, since this is outside our terms of reference, end quote. This is a point of great interest, later referred to as the usual disclaimer, and that's a quote from Captain Gower's unpublished autobiography from 2002. A critical question is highlighted. It is clear that the experts were concerned for the men's radiological safety, otherwise there would have been no point in raising it as a separate issue. If the scientists on the spot were concerned for Diana's radi radiological safety but refusing to take any responsibility for it, then who was responsible for the well-being of these 300 men? Were the government and the Admiralty back in London holding themselves accountable for the health of the crew? What was the official position on this matter before the bombs were detonated? And that is the end of that chapter of the book, and so the end of episode number two of Guinea Pig Ship. And I know that was a very short episode, but I appreciate everybody for tuning in and listening. If you'd like to um, stay in the loop when new episodes are posted and go live, make sure you follow along to the podcast 
Um, if for some reason you're just started on this episode, I recommend you go check out the previous episodes as well. And um, I will talk to you all very soon in uh, the next episode. Thank you so much. Thank you.